in week six of a seven-week series uh, entitled The Jesus Revolution and why it is really good news. And my thanks to, you know, we have crafted this series specifically for all of you who are new to Jesus. Um, we, we wanted to just uh, introduce you to Jesus and his revolution uh, of love and mercy and grace throughout the last 2,000 years. And so I want to thank you. Uh, if you've made it this far, week six, uh, coming with a friend or a family member or a coworker, thank you. That's amazing. And uh, we're glad you're here. Um, I just have two quick things to say. Um, is there, do you hear a little bit of an echo in my voice? Okay. So sorry. I may have... Also, I have killer S's. I have like a whistle in my S, which is just unreal. Uh, and I need to get that fixed somehow with my tongue or something. Um, so here's the deal. Um, just two quick things that I wanted to mention. First of all, this is the first time that I've had the opportunity to see your faces and to tell you that I did not send you an email um, from a few weeks ago. Some, many of you in the room, I am so sorry, got this email. A scammer pretending to be me sent out an email. I know some of you uh, responded and, uh, and this person was asking you to bring gift cards, like $500 gift cards. I just want to let you know, I will never ask you uh, for $500 gift cards ever. And um, this person clearly was, was, not, uh, was not Canadian. They were asking for gift cards from like CVS or something like that. So we don't have CVS here. Anyway, so um, anyway, I am so sorry for that, and uh, it was not me. And so, uh, so there's some churches locally where it seems to be happening regularly with some churches uh, in, uh, around us here, so just be on the watch for that. I'll never ask for, for money, um, unless, of course, it's tithing in a sermon series on tithing. Just joking. Okay, not joking. Anyway, moving on. Um, <laughs> But I would do that from here, <laughs> not from an email. Okay, and uh, I want to talk about the mountain of food. So uh, just a, a quick request. Um, every year, we challenge our church family to bring non-perishable food items to the church. These are donations that, that go to our incredible Langley outreach team. Um, and they cook meals for the poor and the homeless on the streets of our city. Um, I love this team. I don't know, I don't know if you're aware that we have this incredible team that every Sunday evening is cooking, uh, uh, serving, uh, making these meals uh, for, the, for the poor. And we love that team. But this one campaign in the fall uh, where we bring uh, food allows our team to actually be able to serve the poor for an entire calendar year. It's an incredible moment for us as a church. And uh, I just want to highlight that this year we, we had only about 15% of what we would normally bring in. And uh, we're all watching the news. We recognize that this is just a, this is a hard time for many of us, for many of you in the room. And for all, for all of us, this is just Costs are going up, they're going through the roof, and uh, many of us are wondering how to make uh, ends meet. But we could, uh, this is, uh, if you are able, we're, we're making a call to, to give because, uh, you know, the poor of our city are really going to be hit hard this year. And so we want to, to be stocked up, ready to be able to serve them for the year. So just wanted to highlight this. Many of you have maybe received a card. You can see this card, or maybe on your way out, you'll get this card. I wasn't sure whether in or out, but this is actually the list of what we need. So it's not just kind of anything, but it's, it's this list right here. So uh, be sure to check out that list. And if you're able, we would love for you to bring that donation next Sunday, but you can also bring it throughout the week. We have like a pile that will start to grow in our, in our uh, foyer there. And, um, 
uh, we would just love to see that, that grow throughout the week. Whew. Lord, can we please make it through this service without the lights going out? <laughs> um, and so, uh, just so you know, if the lights do go out, uh, just you'll see these exit signs, uh, and uh, we just will safely kind of uh, maybe end our time of worship, just so you know. So um, our ushers are good, so let's all not run out of here if the lights go out. Um, but yeah, so really want to encourage our teams who serve the poor, so that would be great. Okay, let's dive in. Are you ready? Let's do this. Okay, so for seven weeks, we have been exploring seven topics, equality, compassion, consent, enlightenment, science, freedom, and progress. The idea for this series was inspired by this really great book that I read this summer called The Air We Breathe by Glenn Scrivener. In his book, he argues that most people think that these seven ideas or these seven values are good ideas, great ideas. But he, he also argues that most people... Most of our neighbors, most of us, don't realize that these values and ideas come from somewhere. They come from Jesus. I'm not sure most Canadians realize that these seven ideas, that these seven values are rooted in, inspired by, and deeply connected to Christianity, or what we have been calling the Jesus Revolution. For the past number of, of weeks, I've highlighted a quote from British author Tom Holland, who says the Jesus Revolution 2,000 years ago has been the most powerful and enduring revolution in history. He says this, quote, 2,020 years after the birth of Christ, we remain the children of the Christian revolution, the most disruptive, the most influential, and the most enduring revolution in history. We remain the children of the Jesus revolution, and we are living in the echo of that revolution. It's common sense to us. It's like in the air that we breathe. And my hope is that week by week, you and I will look at these seven values, these seven ideas, and if we follow the breadcrumbs, I believe that they will lead us to Jesus. So today, we move on to the topic of freedom freedom. As we dive into the topic of freedom, some words from the Christian Indian philosopher Vishal Mangalwadi. Quote, only cultures founded on the Bible have viewed freedom as a virtue worth dying for. Biblical cultures highly value freedom as the essence of God and of his image, humanity. And from Jesus. So if the sun sets you free, you will be free indeed. King Jesus, we know you're here. You're in our midst. And we pray once again, as you have been doing for 2,000 years, that you would set your people free. That you would set the world free. That you would come and move in power and love and mercy, and grace, and would you set people free from the chains that they're living with? Holy Spirit, we know that wherever you are, there's freedom, and you're here, so would you set us free? Amen. What is a slave? Rodney Stark 
in his book, For the Glory of God, writes this, quote, a slave is a human being who, in the eyes of the law and custom, is the possession or chattel of another human being or of a small group of human beings. The International Justice Mission is a Christian organization that is committed to ending slavery around the world. According to IJM, there are an, an estimated 35 million people held in slavery today. Children represent an estimated 26% of all forced labor victims. India has the largest estimated number of people in slavery between 13 and 14 million people today. If we thought that slavery was something of the past, we need to think again. Are you aware that slave labor was used to prepare for the 2022 World Cup that just starts in a number of weeks? Amnesty International has reported on the slave labor that's been used to build the Khalifa Stadium for the World Cup. They write the following, quote, Migrants building a state-of-the-art stadium for the 2022 Football World Cup in Qatar are abused and exploited while FIFA makes huge profits. Migrants from Bangladesh, India, and Nepal working on the refurbishment of the Showcase Khalifa Stadium and landscaping the surrounding gardens and sporting facilities known as the Aspire Zone are being exploited. Some are being subjected to forced labor. They can't change jobs. They can't leave the country, and they often wait months to get paid. Meanwhile, FIFA, football's global governing body, it sponsors and the construction companies involved are set to make massive financial gains from the tournament. When I was researching this, I saw story after story of workers from, you know, Bangladesh or from India coming over and their passports are taken away from them and they're forced to remain on the property and work without getting paid. North Langley, are you aware that children are mining for cobalt that is being used in our phones, our tablets, our computers and electric vehicles? Siddharth Kara, writing for The Guardian, asked the question, is your phone tainted by the misery of the 35,000 children in Congo's mines? Siddharth says that children as young as six are among those risking their lives amid toxic dust to mine cobalt for the world's big electronic firms. In 2019, a landmark legal case was launched against the world's largest tech companies, Apple, Google, Dell, Microsoft, and Tesla, were named as defendants in that lawsuit. Annie Kelly, writing for The Guardian, said this, quote, Congolese families say their children were killed or maimed while mining for cobalt used to power smartphones, laptops, and electric cars. The lawsuit, which is the result of field research conducted by anti-slavery economist Siddharth Kara, accuses the companies of aiding and abetting in the death and serious injury of children who they claim were working in cobalt mines in their supply chain. North Langley, are you aware of forced labor slavery that comes through something called false debts? Listen to IJM describe forced labor slavery happening all around the world today. One of the most common techniques to entrap laborers is through false debts. 
An owner lures a poor person into slavery by offering a small advance payment for their labor. The owner then ensures it's impossible for the slave to ever repay by inflating the debt owed with exorbitant interest charges, not paying the victim the promised wages, and prohibiting him or her from working anywhere else. These false debts can be passed from one generation to the next. We have identified entire families from grandparents to parents to children who have been forced to work for years after accepting advance payments as low as $20, false debts leading to slavery. What happens inside of you when I read things like this? When you hear about slave labor connected to the World Cup, when you hear about children in cobalt mines in the Congo that maybe were part of the mining for your smartphone. When you hear about false debts that lead to forced labor slavery, like we know this is wrong, right? Like something deep within us just wants to cry out for justice. We're, I know many of, of, of us in the room are trying to be educated to try to figure out how our Habits of what we buy is actually contributing to pain around the world. We know this is wrong. We know there's an injustice here. But why do we know that? Why is that such common sense to us? Why is it that when I read those three examples, you're like, that's, that's terrible. That's awful. Why is our belief that this is wrong, that this is unjust, that this is illegal? Why is it such common sense to each of us? Well, would it interest you to know, and I know many of you know this, but would it interest you to know that slavery was not always seen as the horror uh, that we see it as today? Would it interest you to know that most of world history has believed that not only was slavery just normal, but it was justifiable? Let's begin a bit of a tour by starting off in the ancient world. Let's look at the ancient world. Rodney Stark, in his book, The Triumph of Christianity, writes this, quote, all known societies above the very primitive level have been slave societies. Take a tour in your mind of ancient Babylon, Assyria, ancient Egypt, China, India, Greece, Rome. They were all slave societies, meaning they were empires that were built on the backs of slaves. This is just how the world has worked. There is no record whatsoever, for example, of anyone in Babylon or Assyria ever protesting against the practice of slavery. The Babylonian king Hammurabi, in his Code of Hammurabi, prescribed the death penalty, catch it, to anyone who helped a slave escape. Plato Plato believed that nature itself created slavish people, quote-unquote, people who lacked the mental capacity for virtue. Plato believed that slaves had no souls. Just pause. Just, did you hear that? Plato believes slaves have no souls, so they could be treated in whatever way the master wanted. Aristotle believed slavery was common sense, and from the moment of birth, some are simply born to be slaves. It's natural. You want to look at the way the world works? Aristotle looked around and he was like, it's natural. 
Slavery is natural. I'm going to jump to Christianity a little bit later on in the sermon. But for now, just listen to some other groups around the world who have treated slavery as so normal. In the Muslim world, by the year 1600, 7 million African slaves were taken from their homes into slavery in Muslim homes. In the next 200 years, an additional 2 million African slaves were taken into slavery by Muslims. Even here in the Pacific Northwest, we have record among indigenous communities that slavery was a reality. We have record of slave raids, slave raids from indigenous communities on Vancouver Island coming to enslave the Kwantlen right here in our community. Tom Holland, in his book, Dominion, tells the story, this is an eye-opening story, of the Sultan of Morocco who sums up the universal practice of slavery throughout history. He writes this, in 1842, when the British Consul General to Morocco sought to press the cause of abolitionism, his request that the trade in African slaves be banned was greeted with blank incomprehension. It was a matter, the Sultan declared, on which all sects and nations have agreed from the time of Adam. Someone from England goes to Morocco, right, in 1842 to say, we should really stop the slave trade, at which the sultan goes, slavery has been a matter on which all sects and nations have agreed from the time of Adam. Ancient history doesn't look too pretty. Well, what about the Enlightenment? Well, what about the Enlightenment and, and some of the best thinkers that, according to what we learned in school, ushered in this age of reason and light, right? We were enlightened a couple hundred years ago, right? Surely they, the leaders of the Enlightenment, thought that slavery was evil. No. Many of the leaders of the Enlightenment supported slavery. Thomas Hobbes, John Locke, Voltaire, to name a few. David Hume did not favor the abolition of slavery, and Edmund Burke said that the cause of humanity would benefit from a continued slave trade. You, re you might remember, maybe you were here, week one of our series, we talked about Thomas Jefferson. Jefferson, who was deeply influenced by Enlightenment thinkers, he was the one who penned the U.S. Declaration of Independence, which says, again, we hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal, that they're endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights, that among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. We hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal self-evident. Yet as we saw in week one, even Thomas Jefferson, who penned these words, owned slaves, hundreds of slaves at his home in Monticello. Apparently, this is not self-evident enough to Jefferson. So listen to Tom Holland in his book, Dominion. That all men had been created equal, endowed with an inalienable right to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness were not remotely self-evident truths that most Americans believe they were owed less to philosophy than to the Bible, to the assurance given equally to Christians and Jews, to Protestants and Catholics, to Calvinists and Quakers, that every human being was created in God's image, the truest and ultimate seedbed of the American Republic, no matter what some of those who had composed its founding documents might have cared to think, was the book of Genesis. 
the book of Genesis. And this brings us, North Langley, to consider the Bible, Jesus, and his revolution. Do you remember Genesis chapter 1? On the very first page of our Bible, we read this. So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. On the very first page of the Bible, we run into this concept of the image of God. The Bible is 100% clear that every human being has dignity because they're made in the image of God, both male and female equally made in God's image. We have value and dignity because we're image bearers of God. Then, Jesus, let's go to Jesus. He stands up one day in his hometown of Nazareth, and he reads from the scroll of Isaiah. He's invited to read from the scroll of Isaiah. And he reads what has now become known as the Nazareth Manifesto. This is Jesus' kingly mission. He's about to read his mission, and he reads this. The Spirit of the Lord is on me. Because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. What is the year of the Lord's favor? Some of you at North Langley will know this. It's called the year of Jubilee. It's the year when all debts would be forgiven in Israel. There would be like a massive reset button. Can you imagine all your debt forgiven? The bank calls you. No debt. How excited would you be? You've got to be kidding. Come on. <laughs> yeah. Cause for excitement, right? And this, is, this was the year of Jubilee Jesus is pointing to when all debts would be forgiven, right? There would be no more injustice in the land. And this is what Jesus the king would come to do in his kingdom. He would come to set people free from their slavery. It would be good news to the poor. It would be freedom for the prisoners, recovery of sight for the blind, setting the oppressed free, and proclaiming the year of the Lord's favor, the year of jubilee, the canceling of debts. No more slaves. No more slaves. That's the mission of Jesus. Everywhere Jesus went, he was setting people free, setting them free from the deep, dark sin of their own heart, and setting them free from actual slavery itself, right? The poor were fed, the blind could see, the lame could walk, the marginalized were loved, and the sick were healed. Everywhere Jesus went, it was like heaven was showing up. Everywhere he stepped, it was like a pocket of heaven had opened up. The freedom of heaven would fall upon the earth. God was setting an enslaved world free in and through Jesus. And Jesus promised that he would set you free. And that if he set you free, you'd be free indeed. So if the Son sets you free, you'll be free indeed. See, when we look at Jesus, his entire life was this bold declaration, let my people go. See, Jesus had come as a new Moses. He had come as a new and greater Moses, greater than Moses, who would lead the entire world out of slavery and darkness in Egypt, into a promised land. And so he would tell that story again of Moses and the people of Israel into the promised land, but he would do it on a macro scale. 
He would offer that invitation of freedom from slavery to the world. And Jesus would stare at all evil and darkness and say, let my people go. Let my people go. And his promise was this. I have come that they may have life and have it to the full. Right before this, he said, there's a thief. And the thief will come to steal, kill, and destroy. But I have come that they may have life and have it to the full. And so you can imagine what early Jesus followers, they were just blown away by a kingdom of freedom. A kingdom of freedom. And following Jesus, many Christians throughout history have worked to bring an end to slavery all around them. All the slavery that they witnessed, they sought to bring freedom to those held captive in slavery. Rodney Stark again, quote, of all the world's religions, including the three great monotheisms, only in Christianity did the idea develop that slavery was sinful and must be abolished. Although it has been fashionable to deny it, anti-slavery doctrines began to appear in Christian theology soon after the decline of Rome. It's powerful. It's a beautiful revolution. But we have a problem. And some of you have already been thinking about this problem (laughs) most of the time I've been speaking, right? With all this talk of freedom, how come followers of Jesus, 1,600 years after Jesus, owned slaves in the American South? How could slave owners say that they were Christians, that they were following Jesus, who came to set people free. How could they say that while owning slaves? This right here, in my mind, is one of the darkest stains upon the story of the Jesus Revolution. It's evil. It's wrong. Some of you know the name Frederick Douglass. Frederick Douglass was a follower of Jesus but he was a former slave. And in a message to one of his former slave owners, Thomas Auld, he wrote the following. And I want you to watch Frederick Douglass's commitment to his God. The grim horrors of slavery rise in all their ghastly terror before me. The walls of, the wails of millions pierce my heart and chill my blood. I remember the chain, the gag, the bloody whip, the death-like gloom overshadowing the broken spirit of the fettered bondman, the appalling liability of his being torn away from wife and children and sold like a beast in the market. It is an outrage upon the soul, a war upon the immortal spirit, and one for which you must give account at the bar of our common father and creator. Did you catch the last part? He says to his slave owner, who is a Christian, you must give account, an account, at the bar of our common father and creator. Frederick Douglass, far from throwing away Christianity as the religion of the slave master, actually sees in the Bible the hope of a judgment day when his slave master will have to stand before God and give an account of his actions. See, here's a slave who became a Christian 
and saw in the Bible a story of freedom. Yes, absolutely, there was a bad way to read the Bible when it came to slavery. And if you want to know some of the details of that terrible way of reading the Bible, um, we, I do a podcast each week, and I'm going to dive into it with Corey, our pastor of worship here. We're going to explain a little bit more of, of, of what happened there. But those who read the scriptures correctly saw freedom in the story of Israel being set free from slavery in Egypt. They saw freedom in Jesus who came to set people free. Many slaves in the American South started to see the story of freedom in the Bible, right? The, the very Bible that slave owners were, were misusing to keep their slaves in bondage was being read by African-American slaves, and they were seeing freedom all over the pages. They were reading it correctly, and they saw freedom. Glenn Scrivener, when enslaved believers turned to the Old Testament, they did not find, as their owners claimed to, a justification for their enslavement. Instead, they discovered an experience like their own, a people held captive in Egypt, yet favored by God, who takes their side against their oppressors, judges their captors, and brings them out to a land flowing with milk and honey. This was the defining event for the Old Testament and the pattern of Christ's New Testament redemption. And how beautiful that African-American slaves saw it. They saw it. They were reading the Bible correctly. They read verses like this one in the New Testament. We also know that the law is made not for the righteous, but for lawbreakers and rebels, for slave traitors and liars and perjurers, and for whatever else is contrary to sound doctrine. See, slavery and the slave trade was sinful, absolutely sinful. So did you know that in America, Quakers who followed Jesus started the abolitionist movement? Did you know that they started to preach that to enslave someone was to enslave Christ? To enslave someone, it's to enslave Christ. Did you know that it was the Puritan majority in, the, in Massachusetts in the Massachusetts legislature in 1771 that outlawed the importation of slaves, Puritans were following Jesus in that moment. Did you know that it was Jesus' followers in New York and New Jersey and Pennsylvania who prohibited their members from owning slaves under penalty of exclusion? If you own a slave, you are excommunicated from the church. Did you know that it was Jesus' follower, William Wilberforce, who assumed responsibility for guiding the anti-slavery efforts in the House of Commons in England, where the slave trade was abolished? Did you know that it was the preacher, John Wesley, who preached against slavery and coordinated the resources of his Methodist chapels to help the coalition for the abolition of the slave trade? Did you know that it was Abraham Lincoln who used Jesus' language, biblical language, to argue for the end of slavery, saying this, quote, nothing stamped with the divine image and likeness was sent into the world to be trodden on and degraded and embruted by his fellows. That's Genesis 1. Do you see Genesis 1 in Lincoln's words? It's Genesis 1, every human being stamped with the divine image. David Bryan Davis the preeminent historian of transatlantic slavery, 
He wrote this, quote, religion was the central concern of all the British abolitionist leaders, without which the fall of New World slavery could not have occurred, and that this amounts to a moral achievement that may have no parallel. It was followers of Jesus who led the fight for the abolition of the slave trade. Glenn Scrivener, finally. In the 18th and 19th centuries, Christians, acting for distinctively Christian reasons, did something no one had ever done. They drove the abolition of the slave trade, overturning a practice present in all times and places in history. So here's the difficult story in the American South. While Christians in the South justified slavery, it was followers of Jesus who led the fight for freedom. Christians, um, if we're following Jesus, how does that shape today? How does that shape the world around us today? If we're following Jesus, the one who came to bring life and freedom, then we need to think about freedom for people today. Where were my clothes made? What's the treatment of those people who made this? Where did the metals in my phone get sourced from? Was it the Congo? Where did the diamond on your ring come from? Who built that stadium where that game is being played? We follow Jesus, the King of freedom. And so how we decide to live our lives, it matters. The choices we make, they matter. And some of you have a passion for justice and have a passion for freedom to see the end of slavery in our lifetime and go for it. Just go for it. I love it that God has given you that passion and you should run with that passion. It's beautiful. You're part of the Jesus revolution. So I want to ask a question as we end today. It's a really good question. From, a, from an atheist. How do you know that freedom for all people is good? How do you know that all people are created equal and deserve freedom? The atheist, atheist I'm talking about is an author named Yuval Noah Harari. And he asks, I think, a very brilliant question. He asks this, quote, the Americans got the idea of equality from Christianity, which argues that every person has a divinely created soul and that all souls are equal before God. However, if we do not believe in the Christian myths about God, creation, and souls, what does it mean that all people are equal? It's something to wrestle with. It's something that our secular age has to wrestle with. The atheist here leaves us with the right question. Where do we get the idea that all people are created equal? that all people should be free. Did we get that idea from the ancient world? No. Did we get that idea from enlightenment thinkers? No. We got the idea from the story of God in the pages of scripture. We got that idea from Jesus. So here's the deal. I believe that if you believe in freedom, that if you know at a gut level that slavery in all of its forms is evil, then I believe that you already believe in one of the core beliefs of the Jesus Revolution.
freedom. If you like freedom, I think you will love Jesus. But there's all kinds of slavery, right? The reality is that many of us are feeling enslaved uh, deep inside in the thoughts that we're having, in the habits that we have, in the, in the decisions that we're making. Some of us feel like we're slaves of envy, slaves to greed, slaves to some kind of addiction, a slave of bitterness, a slave of anger. I could go on. What have you come with? What are the chains that you've come with today? Because Jesus is here and he's ready to set you free. Our prayer team this morning was praying that, that the Son of God would set people free today. And so what I'd invite you to do is if you feel comfortable, just close your eyes and take a moment and see the cross in your mind's eye. Look at the cross and look at Jesus crucified for you. And let me tell you what's going on in this moment. When you see Jesus on the cross and you see him crucified, here's what he's doing. At the cross, Jesus is ending slavery once and for all. How? Well, at the cross, the scriptures tell us that Jesus was paying a ransom price so that you would be purchased out of slavery, out of darkness. It's, a, it's deeply powerful and mysterious, but that somehow the blood of Christ, his death was paying the ultimate price to purchase your freedom out of slavery and into the life of God. He paid the ransom price. And in that moment, he crushed evil. He crushed the enemy of our souls. And he invites you into his freedom. And then he rose from the dead and he just defeated death itself that no longer has power over us. And then he promises to fill you with his spirit. And some of you know this, where the spirit of the Lord is, there's freedom. Where the spirit of the Lord is, there's freedom. And the spirit of God, we believe, is moving in this room. He's working right now and he's longing to set you free. So if the Son sets you free, you'll be free indeed. North Langley, in a, in a couple minutes, you're gonna see a prayer team come forward and they're gonna stand at the sides and we have a prayer room in the back. And many of you know this, but I would invite you to come forward and receive prayer for freedom. And let me just say a couple things. First of all, I think that there are some of us here who have been on a journey discovering Jesus, and maybe today is your day of freedom. Maybe today is the day where you surrender your life to Jesus for the very first time. And you've been waiting for a moment, maybe, and so I want to just offer this moment as a moment where God can set your heart free. He can forgive you of sin, give a massive restart button, fill you with his life and love and grace and forgiveness and mercy and healing. But this is the moment where you just say, I want to follow you, Jesus. 
I want you to be the king of my life. Would you come forward? You can come forward in a minute and talk to our prayer team members. They would love to lead you in a prayer where you give your life to Jesus for the first time. Or you can go to our prayer room in the back. Our prayer team would love to pray with you for the very first time to become a follower of Jesus. And to a second group of people, for all of us who are following Jesus, but something is not right. We feel like we're in slavery, some kind of addiction, some kind of lie that we're choosing to believe, some kind of self-condemnation. Don't you know that the Spirit of the Lord is here and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there's freedom? So would you come forward and pray? Would you maybe, just as the Lord guides you, just maybe turn to someone you trust next to you and ask them to pray for you? What we're gonna do in the next couple songs, we're just gonna make this one big loving prayer room here. And we want to encounter the living God. Would you stand with me here? Spirit of the living God, we know you're here in the room. We know you're at work. And we know that you're here to set us free. And so we would ask in your mercy that you would come and that you would minister to us here in the room. This is your space. You're in charge. Would you come and move in just a beautiful way and do what you know how to do best, which is set us free. Jesus, we thank you for the cross. We thank you for the resurrection. And we thank you for your mission. And we pray that you would accomplish it here in us today. There's a thief that has come to steal, kill, and destroy. But Jesus, we know that you have come to give us life and life to the full. So fill this room with your life and love. Amen.